Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, is standing by to talk about the return of the Nephilim, and he is with us for the full two hours. I can't wait to dive into this conversation. However, just a, a few programming notes. My technical producer tonight is Duncan Briggs. Ryan White is the YouTube live stream producer. And I also want to note the passing of Stanton Friedman, who died last Monday at the age of 84. Stanton was widely considered the grandfather of modern-day ufology and the first citizen investigator to research the UFO incident at Roswell, New Mexico. And he was passionate, tireless, and just a kind, gentle soul. And he will be missed. And uh, incidentally, I'm planning a tribute show for sometime next month. So keep checking the website, strangeplanet.ca, for details. There are giants among us, passing largely unnoticed, intent on carrying out a secret plan to enslave all humanity. They may not look like giants, but their bloodlines extend all the way back to the Nephilim, the offspring of fallen angels who mated with human women described in Genesis 6 when giants roamed the land. Gary Wayne, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Humankind, details the role of modern-day Nephilim in Satan's plan to install the Antichrist at the end of days. Gary is a Christian contrarian who has maintained a lifelong love affair with biblical prophecy, history, and mythology. His extensive study has encompassed the Bible and Gnostic scriptures, the Koran, the Bhagavad Gita, Gilgamesh, and other ancient epics, language, etymology, and secret society publications. Gary, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Doing very well and uh, so excited to be invited to to be on your show and talk about the Genesis 6 conspiracy and everything anybody ever wanted to know about Nephilim. Well, there is so much to discuss. We'll try to squeeze as much as we can over the next two hours. Uh, For those not intimately um, informed on the Bible, what does Genesis 6 actually say about the Nephilim? It's a very interesting chapter because it comes right after the genealogies in Genesis 5, and then it's a preamble to the flood story. So you have four unique, very almost odd verses in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 that describe the sons of God who are angels, who go to the daughters of human females, have sex with them, take them as wives, and create the giants as the King James Version states in Nephilim as it is in other English translations and noting that giant goes back to the Hebrew word Nephil and the I am is the male plural. And these were the demigods and the heroes of old and the men of renown, the mighty ones. And so we have this very interesting verse that is put in where the flood story is about to begin because right after this account it goes into the Noah account and the building of the ark and the flood that's coming and It is setting the context for why the flood comes, but we're not provided any other details 
right there in Genesis in terms of the Nephilim. It's just sort of inserted there. And I know a lot of readers, when they go through, they read those verses, probably their eyes bug out a little bit, and then kind of keep on going because it's like, you know, what's that all about? So, But it has so much to do with what happens in the Bible that if you don't understand what is going on with the Nephilim and the angels and the angelic rebellion, so much of the Bible does not come into focus in, in the proper context is is sort of overlooked. And is Genesis 6 the only place where the Nephilim are mentioned? Uh, Nephilim only shows up uh, in the Bible three times. Uh, in Genesis 6, where it says giants, and then Numbers 13.33, where, again, the word giant is used in the King James Version Bible, uh, where it's talking about the Anakim, who are Rephaim, who are said to be the descendants of giants in that passage. The other root words uh, where giant goes back to for all the other times in the Bible is the word Rapha or Raphaim, again for the male plural, just as these tribes that are showing up after the flood, and in Deuteronomy 2 lists a lot of them, there are, are more beyond that, but tribes like the Anakim, tribes like the Amin, the Zamzuzim, the Avim, the Horim, and so many others are all giants and Rephaim and are different branches of the Rephaim. So technically, to answer your question, Nephilim only show up uh, for the most part before the flood, but then a distinct being that seems to be the same kind of being and perhaps from a second incursion or a different branch of the Nephilim uh, do show up after the flood and continue all of the way to the times of David in the Bible. And what about in the Apocrypha? Uh, it seems to me they're also mentioned in the Book of Enoch. Yeah, once you get outside the Bible, that gets to be, again, a very, very common term. So First Enoch, which most people are aware of, is a very, very good book to read for additional context to the angelic rebellion and the watchers. Of course, watchers show up in Daniel 4, and I think those are the seraphim angels that have... The, the serpents of a face, they're the fiery serpents as they translate back to seraph and seraphim again for the male plural. And you get the whole account of, of the Nephilim of the creation in a lot more detail. And first Enoch runs very, very consistent with the Bible. It's got a few corruptions. We don't have the original manuscript uh, out of Hebrew. We have Aramaic and the uh, the Giaz version of it that comes out of Ethiopia, and that's the longer version of first Enoch. But for anybody who wants to learn more about it, I would very much encourage them to read that book for the context because because it runs very, very concurrent with the Bible. And and is there any dispute? I mean, I, I know that you, you gave us sort of the etymology of Nephilim in Hebrew, but still there are those who argue, no, that's not what it meant. What do you say to those people? Well, and I think we need to respect everybody's point of view on these things. And what they tend to say is that these were just... Uh, the sons of Seth and called the sons of God because they were the followers of God. Except that, you know, humans mating with humans aren't going to be able to create monsters or giants and or demigods because they had the immortal spirit that was passed on to them, which is why in Genesis 6-3, God steps in to limit all life to 120 years. It takes a few generations for that to kick in moving forward after the flood. 
but it does kick in, and that's in response to the creation of these sons of God who are taking human females to create these uh, Nephilim, who are called Gibberim, which are the mighty ones, and the men of renown, which is Shem, and Shemaim, and Shemaim is the heavenly ones, and so they're the offspring of the heavenly ones. When we get into the definition of sons of God, a lot of people will jump in and say, well, wait a minute. You have the sons of God that are discussed in the New Testament. And the, that it's very much true that we as Christians and those who, who are Christians are going to be adopted as uh, sons of God through the resurrection and because of Jesus' resurrection. And we're going to be adopted as his brothers and as sons of God. And we're actually going to uh, reign over and judge the, uh, the angels in, in the future time. The thing is, is though, that is after their resurrection. So that's a future forward thing, and it has nothing to do with the sons of God in the Bible. So if you get into, let's say, Job 1, 6, 2, 1, 38, verses 4 through 7, you have the sons of God in the King James Version Bible and many of the other English translations. It will just simply say angels. And these are the sons of God who present themselves to uh, God in, in the throne of God, which humans have never done. And Satan accompanies, accompanies these angels, who, and Satan, of course, is, you know, the chief fallen angel of the rebellious angels in Job 1 and Job 2. And in Job 38, they are cheering on creation at the time of creation with the morning stars, and of course, humans weren't there in in uh, the, the creation of the universe. And secondly, you have a whole host of other terms that are used to describe angels as in stars, as in morning stars in Job 38. You have the heavenly host, um, and they all support each other as being the same type of beings. And these rebellious angels are known as the gods in the Old Testament. And Psalm 82 talks about this council of ruling gods after the flood, so different from the ones that were before the flood because the impassioned ones are put into the abyss of Revelation 9. But everything in the Bible goes to discussing that these sons of God were actually angels and they created these giants. And we get an understanding of how tall these giants are because even after the flood and over a thousand years after the flood, you have Goliath, who is six cubits in a span. And that comes through as in modern English measurement, if you're using a common cubit at nine feet, nine inches, or a royal cubit, which I would argue one should use because he would have been the king of Gath as a Gittite, and an Avim, part of that Raphaim branch of giants after the flood, uh, that would have put him more to 11 feet 1 inches to 11 feet 3. And then King Og, and I won't go through the details of his measurements in his bed that was made of iron, uh, because wood would not be strong enough to take the weight. He was even taller still. And we think the Nephilim were somewhere between 20 and 40 feet, although we don't know whether or not they were even larger than that because when you get into the first Enoch, you get two translations with a with a, a numerical value. So you have 300 associated with L's or cubits. And we don't know how big an L is, but if it was cubits that they're talking about, then it'd be over 450 feet tall. But again, we don't have the original Hebrew, and we don't know what that original measurement was. So these were monsters, and they were not just tall. They were 
twice as wide and stocky. So where an average human would have a height width ratio, let's say, of three to one on average, these Nephilim had two to one. So these were dexterous warriors, fleet of foot, fleet of hand, uh, that became the demigods, and the original ones had that immortal spirit where the demons come from. And they would have ruled the ancient world, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just with their sheer size and warrior capabilities. And, of course, they were producing in numbers and were, you know, just increasing in population. They come along in Enoch in the sixth generation, and in the Bible we understand that as the days of Noah and Noah and Jared's timeline overlap. So that remains quite congruent in terms of how that story goes. But, yeah, they usurped all of the kingships of the antediluvian world, uh, enforced a universal polytheist religion in worship of the pantheon of fallen angels. Uh, and I think it's the same pantheon that was used all around the world, with just different vernacular names, both before the flood and then again after the flood. And also, you have... These Raphaim beings, these giants that show up after the flood that are somehow related to the Nephilim, but somehow a little bit distinct just because they have a different root name. And again, Raphaim goes back to the tribe of giants and or uh, deceased spirits of the giants, of the dead. And they also usurp the kingships and set up all of the royal dynasties around the world that we know of today. And when we look at the, the noble elite, they tend to take their genealogies back to these gods and these demigods that ruled after the flood. Now, let me just back up to Genesis 6 again, because when we're talking about fallen angels, commingling, I'll use that term because it's a family show, commingling with the daughters of men, most of us, I think, myself included, were sort of raised under the idea that angels including fallen angels, are spiritual beings. Ephesians talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. So not against flesh and blood. But in order for a fallen angel to have relations with a human female, wouldn't they have to be flesh and blood? Yeah, they most definitely would have to be. And that's one of those sort of nuances in terms of if we're going to take this this concept realistically, we have to be able to understand how they're able to, as spirit beings, create beings with uh, beings of, of flesh in the physical world. And I would start that, this understanding that these were not angels uh, is only about 200 years old and is the typical doctrine now that's taught in the seminary schools. But before that, it was always taught that these were indeed angels. And so if you read Josephus's account, who wrote the complete history of the Jewish people for the Romans after the diaspora and the war against the people of Judah in around 70 AD when Jerusalem is destroyed, and so that their history won't be lost, he understood them as angels and these as giant monster beings, very similar to the beings that were called the titans in Greek mythology or the heroes in Greek mythology and the giants in accounts around the world. So this was sort of the understood concept before the last couple of hundred years, but that still doesn't explain how they're able to do this. What we do know is that when angels interact in this world, they tend to take a physical form. 
So we get many, many accounts in the Bible where they're depicted as men that you don't recognize as men. They, they talk, they eat, they touch, and they're very much physical. Some accounts where they're described as men, but they know somehow they're angels. You, we get descriptions of six-winged seraphim angels uh, in Isaiah 6. We get uh, angels like Gabriel coming down. Uh, and talking to to beings in the in people in the New Testament, uh, whether it's Mary or Elizabeth or and, and others, in terms of interacting and touching, you get all sorts of watchers in in Daniel four. You in all of these descriptions have different physical traits to them, just as Satan is described as a dragon or a serpent in this world, and. These are not spiritual descriptions. These are physical descriptions. So what we learn from this is that somehow, some way, they are able to take on a physical form. And Jude 1.6 talks about leaving their habitat um, in heaven, and uh, you know, where they lost their estate when they committed these crimes. And that's why it's linked to the abyss in uh, Jude 1.6. And that word, habitat derives from oiketarian in Greek, and that's a dwelling place for the spirit. So they left the place of dwelling for their spirit, and seemingly they need a dwelling place in the physical world to interact. And as we understand this, this is, you know, taking a physical form. And if you can take a physical form, then you can add any sort of organs or parts that you want to do what you want. You can take any gender of your choice, which I think, somewhat explains why you have uh, female gods and goddesses in the pantheon, so that I think many of the rebellious angels take a, uh, a feminine form in, 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 in this world to form the pantheon. We also get these satyr gods, these devil gods uh, that are talked about. Satyr shows up in Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34, and I think these are the degraded physical gods after the rebellion, the ones who weren't put into the abyss, just as Azazel would also be described as the scapegoat or the goat god who was the leader of these angelic watchers and in the abyss. So I think they're all degraded just as Satan was degraded back to Satan's status after the rebellion as well. And these are the gods that are the ones that aren't in the abyss, the ones that are talked about in Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34, and the devil gods that uh, they're worshipping. And I won't go into all of the minutia of where to find that in the Bible, but people want to get a hold of me, I, I can send those those details to you. These are the gods that are the ruling council for the 70 nations coming out of Babel that are described in Psalm 82. Now, are there clues in the Bible as to when this actual commingling in Genesis 6 took place? Can we pinpoint exactly where the the fallen angels landed? Was there a a particular uh, village or kingdom? Well, biblically, we're not told that they... You know, they come in a visit to do this. We're understood that these were the, uh, the watchers who governed the physical world before the flood. Um, so what we understand is, is that they were down, um, and supposed to be helping humankind, but when they rebel, they 
commit these violations against the, the laws of creation. So we don't get how many civilizations in the Bible, but if you get into outside the biblical accounts, you understand that there's more than just sort of the Sumerian uh, antediluvian civilization that seemingly the Bible is around, and all of a sudden all of these other ones sort of come into play that they would have had different civilizations around the world, somewhere between four and nine, depending on which religion and mythology that you're talking about. Four and seven seem to be the more traditional uh, civilizations, and these were all cult centers. So you can imagine uh, civilizations like Atlantis, which again has a identical story to Genesis told within it, and, and, a, and a terrific parallel polytheist account of the same story. Uh, and you can imagine civilizations like Mu, perhaps Lemuria, but that's more of a last couple hundred year inventions by the Theosophists, uh, Asgard or Thule as it comes out of North mythology. And all around the world you can imagine these civilizations. Gary, but I'm going to jump they... in here. Pardon the interruption. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back. It sounds like there may have been a bargain uh, in the works. Uh, in some cases, maybe the women were taken by force, but in others, maybe they were given away in exchange for something. We'll talk about that. Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Gary Wayne is with us, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. So, in some cases, were the women taken by force by the fallen angels? And in some cases, was there uh, maybe a dowry or, a, or some sort of a bargain uh, made you know, in exchange for being married to... I'm sure these fallen angels were, you know, handsome. Uh, you know, as Lucifer was, the shining one. Uh, so, I mean, was there a deal struck? Well, I, I think there were, and it goes sort of hand in hand in terms of when and how they were created. And so, what we're told in, in Enoch is that uh, Satan leads them to Mount Hermon. Of course, Mount Hermon is in the Bible, and it's the region of Bashan. And so, this is where it's thought that the first incursion uh, took place. And then there would have been other incursions because we're told that, you know, they took any, anybody they chose, took any wife that they chose. And I think that they chose quite often because, uh, they, you know, it says that they were created these, created these giants then and then afterwards. We don't know whether that is in, you know, for all the years until the flood came, there was multiple recreations and or that is referencing a second incursion after the flood. But we know it took place more than once and we know they chose the wife. So whether or not they were forced or some of them volunteered, that's not clear in the Bible, but when you get outside the Bible, there is this understanding that um, if the angels could take any form that they want, they could make themselves very appealing to uh, women to entice them to have sex. And secondly, they tended to offer knowledge and power for being their wives to produce these babies, although I'm not convinced they were rewarded from that in a physical sense because 
we're told, and particularly in the, in the Kebra Nagast, which talks about, uh, which is the Ethiopian Old Testament for people not familiar with the Kebra Nagast, it talks about the birth of these babies and they were so large that they couldn't be delivered through normal manners. And so they did sort of a barbaric cesarean delivery that caused the death of the mothers. And so I think there was initially where they were enticed through knowledge and perhaps that these angels were very appealing in terms of how they could have changed their form to do that, but they weren't able to sort of reap the reward from that because it sounds like they died from the Kebra and the gas, and that makes sense if they're trying to uh, deliver these monstrous-sized babies because giants would have been, you know, giant babies as, as well. So I think um, what it, what was going on here is that um, for the most part, they forced the women to, to, to be part of their harems for, for reproduction afterwards. Uh, and yet we see uh, these civilizations like Sumeria that seem to spring out of nowhere. I mean, on the timeline, everyone else is still living in mud huts, crawling out of the trees, and yet in Sumeria we see... We see libraries, we see agricultural techniques that far surpassed, I mean, everything, everyone else were hunter-gatherers. So there must have been some sort of a knowledge exchange. Yeah, and if you look at whether or not it's Sumeria or any of the ancient civilizations, and particularly free, uh, pre-flood, but then again, again, it happens after the flood, they accredit all of their knowledge and civilization to the gods that they delivered this knowledge. And so what we understand through secret societies, and particularly the Rosicrucians and the ancient Masons, is that although the descendants, uh, you know, of the original humans were taught um, the basic seven uh, liberal arts, or the seven sacred sciences, as they call it, was only after the gods injected the illicit knowledge from heaven that set this civilization on a fast track to to knowledge, technology, and development. And so all of the different accounts are, are pretty congruent in, in that there's a certain point where this happens. We don't get a lot coming out of archaeology other than the Sumerian um, civilization that just explodes without any sort of history before for writing or a development of writing or the development of the agricultural skills or the astronomical skills or the building skills to build these great um, megalithic buildings to worship the, the gods. So all of this is accredited to go back to the gods, as I said earlier. And we also have ruins both below the ocean and above the ocean that seem to be antediluvian as well all around the world. So uh, I would say the places like Machu Picchu, um, probably most of the the uh, Kishamaya and Aztec ruins would be antediluvian as well, and they'll tell you they inherited those buildings and those structures, and the gods built them, just as the gods were credited for building most of the structures in Sumeria. And then you have um, the pyramids in Egypt, and I know the standard chronology is about 23 to 2400 BC um, with Kephra, but there are with the uh, there are some relics, if I can put it that way, or uh, um, I'm trying to think of uh, the right word, but anyways, um, we'll call it a relic for lack of a better word right now. Artifact. Uh, 
artifact. That's the word that I'm looking for, uh, where you have this 52-degree sloped uh, pyramid depicted at about 3000 BC, which is, um, and that's on the tablet of, of uh, Narma. And uh, so we have a predating before the 2400 for, for, for the pyramids, which again goes back to a lot of other accounts that these were built in the time before the flood. So um, this knowledge definitely comes from the gods and explains a whole bunch of different things where they go, you know, human beings seemingly go from hunters and gatherers to a civilized civilization without any logical answers to it. Now, do we have any idea as to, you know, what percentage of the world's population were hybrids at this point? In the, in, you know, when we're talking about the Old Testament, let's say pre-flood. Yeah, we don't have any idea. What we do know is some of the accounts that when you look at the Manichaean Book of Giants, and there's a publication out that's part of that series um, that goes back, I think, to as as they date that back to the Book of Giants, which is part of the Enoch series. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of these giants that that come about. Um, so we don't know how many there were, but they fought these great wars. And all the accounts uh, around the world talk about this war of these giants against the gods. So they get so arrogant and so proud and so powerful, they actually think they can overthrow the gods. But that's why the flood comes in all of the different polytheist accounts, which is very, very similar to you know, what the Bible talks about. So I think there was, my speculation would be is, is there probably would have been millions of these demigods. And, uh, you know, they turned against uh, humankind um, and turned against themselves. And in the Greek account with uh, in Crataeus and uh, Timaeus, uh, you have Plato talking about this war where you have a ten-nation empire of these giants of Atlantis um, that is trying to take over the whole world. Um, now, they're stopped by Hercules and other what they would call good giants in, in the polytheist duality part of the religion uh, from the antediluvian Greek civilization. And so the Athenians are the ones given credit for defeating uh, the Atlantean Empire. Um, but This, this is what the Greeks is, would have called the Battle of the Titans. Yes, exactly. And we know that these are the same types of beings because you have uh, the Titans, which are known as gods or the ones of heaven and also uh, of the earth, just as Atlas is the uh, offspring of Poseidon and or Iapetus, depending on which version you're reading, or Clido and Clymene. He is also a hero, and the heroes were the beings like Theseus and Hercules and Perseus and all these other accounts that you get coming out of, out of Greek mythology, and they, and they were giants. And so... We, we, we do have uh, an understanding that these were the same type of beings that are talked about in, in the Genesis account. Right. And, and sticking with the, uh, the Greek pantheon for a moment, was Zeus, uh, was he a fallen angel or was he a Nephilim? 
Well, that's where you get into that word of titans of heaven and titans of the earth or the Anunnaki in the Sumerian pantheon of heaven and the Anunnaki of, of earth and the different levels of the gods. So there's a high, definite hierarchy and there's also what they call the parent gods. So in Greek mythology, you would have had Kronos and Gaia and uh, a number of other gods that would be known as the parent gods. And then Zeus would be one of the offspring and part of the Mount Olympus gods. And you get sort of the same understanding in um, Egypt, Egyptian mythology and religion with the Ogdod gods, which uh, gods like Ra would have been part of, and then Osiris, which would be very much similar to Zeus or Zeus, uh, would be part of that second level. And those would be all offsprings of gods mating with with gods, and so there would be the lower level of gods. All right, I've got, a, in, I've got to j- a jump in here again. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss the Genesis 6 conspiracy with Gary Wayne right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Gary Wayne, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, is with us for the full two hours. And we were talking about the uh, the Greek pantheon. I just wanted to circle back to the Old Testament for a moment. And I remember as a child, I was always confused, as I'm sure many young Christians were, why the God of the Old Testament seemed so wrathful. He was constantly ordering the Israelites to go into this village and smite, to kill every man, woman, and child. And that just did not, I couldn't reconcile that with the loving God of the New Testament. And some, some people claim, uh, you know, that, oh, well, it's, that's because it's two separate gods. And I, I never, I never bought into that, of course. But in light of the fact that there, the, you know, the gene pool was so contaminated and, you know, there was, there were millions of giants running around. Is that what God was ordering the Israelites to destroy? These hybrids? They were demons, right? Well, I wouldn't call them demons from my understanding. Um, the demons would be the um, bodiless spirits of the original Nephilim that come out of Genesis 6 and are killed before the flood and or with the flood, and their spirits aren't permitted to go to sleep or into heaven, and they continue to, to wander the earth uh, in dry places and almost thirst to possess human bodies, which is what Jesus is talking about in the New Testament. And you know that in Greek mythology from uh, the hero worship. So it all roots to the same thing. But what's going on after the flood is, again, we get these Rephaim-type beings that are showing up after the flood um, who are very much similar to the, the Nephilim, maybe not with the same immortal spirit and maybe not as large, but still giants nonetheless. And they are congregating in, in large numbers in the covenant land, in God's land that he has um, set aside for himself and for his nation, which is Israel. And they're waiting there in ambush to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. And so these beings that are living there, the Rephaim, and, and by the many different names I named earlier, they are also intermarrying with the Canaanites. So you've got two levels of beings. One is a... Um, is the uh, Raphaim giants, and then there's a little bit more diluted bloodline of the hybrids that are uh, intermarried with with the Canaanites. And in the Canaanite 
genealogy, you've got all of these different names other than Heth and Sidon, uh, which are the sons of Canaan, but you've got like the Amorites and the Hivites and on and on and on who don't have a patriarch's name. And all the names in the table of nations have a patriarch. That's likely because daughters of Canaan, Sidon, and Heth, um, who produced the Hittites, uh, that's Heth, uh, would have married a patriarch of the Raphaim and created like the Amorites and, and all the other nations that are listed as, as Canaanite families of, of nations. And so these were the nations that occupied the land with the Anakim and the Avim and the Horim and the Hivim and the Raphaim. And these are all of the nations that Israel are going to have to encounter without having the ability to manufacture chariots and, and smelters for iron and heavy shields. And they're going to go up against these powerful giant armies, hybrid giants, and humans occupying the land who have all of these other weapons. And so they're there to uh, prevent uh, the giants from... Uh, wiping them, you know, the newly formed nation state of Israel from the face of the earth, and Israel is tr- is going to take the land from these beings who have waited for them to show up so that they can slaughter them, and so this is the the that big overarching war that's going on, and they're told not to leave any survivors of these of these people who have polluted the land in terms of their polytheism and the degradation of of their idols and 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 the things they would have said against the god of the of the universe um, so that they're not going to affect israelites going forward unfortunately israel doesn't follow that through completely and they leave survivors and it comes back around and you see this as part of the Israelite history until their diaspora in 721 with the Assyrians and then with the Babylonians um, in 587-89 and then again uh, with the Romans uh, after they reject their, their Messiah. So, I've just got about uh, maybe 30 seconds here but if if someone was the descendant of an Ephilim, uh, and intermarried with the Canaanites or whomever, but intermarried with humans, because that person has, I guess, the, the DNA of, of the fallen angels in their ancestry, does that mean that they are beyond redemption? Well, many, many people say so. I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus' atonement is greater than all of the sins in the world except for a deliberate violation against the laws of creation. So that if you have that bloodline or that DNA or that gene of ISIS, as they like to call it, um, that doesn't preclude you from salvation. It's your free choice to choose God and Jesus uh, for your own salvation. And if you do, those sins would be... All right, we'll uh, take another time out, come back, continue discussing the Nephilim, the bloodline of the Nephilim, and how they are still among us and ready to enslave humanity. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Gary Wayne, the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. First, how do we get a hold of the book, Gary? 
Well, you can get a hold of my book uh, through my website, uh, genesis6conspiracy.com. That's genesis6 with the number 6conspiracy.com. And on that website, I give a generous example of all 98 chapters so you can get a good feel for the book. And you can buy a signed copy from me there, or you can link over to Amazon.ca or to Amazon.com or on BarnesandNoble.com or over to the Kindle version in both the U.S. and in Canada. In Canada, the book is uh, has been stocked by Chapters and Indigos, so um, it's not in all of the stores there, but if you wanted to order it through them, it's uh, one of their stocking books. And it's also distributed in the U.S. Uh, by Bookmasters, so it's available to all the retailers down there. So, again, if they don't have it on the shelf and you wanted to support your local bookstore, just have them order it from Bookmasters. Let's talk a little bit about the flood and the reason for the flood. Moses and his family are described sort of as the last pure blood. Is that is that accurate? Is that what was going on, that they were preserved because they had no Nephilim blood in them whatsoever? Well, that's how we, I think that's why we get the genealogy coming down for Noah, uh, so that we know that his genealogy goes right back to Seth, and we don't see inter, any intermarriage in there in that direct descendancy. And so we presume then that the wives would have the same pure blood uh, within the Sethian line and, and no uh, crossbreeding going on in the mix. We're not told that. We're not told whether, you know, who's, who the wives' names are and what their genealogy is. But that seems to be that what God is doing is, is trying to start the new world free from that contamination within the human genome. And to give every, everyone a second chance. But I would also suggest that, uh, the whole world was corrupted. And, you know, the word corrupt in, in Genesis 6 is shakath. And that means to destroy, to decay, to ruin. And when it says the whole world was corrupted, that's more than just the violence that most people take for the cause of the flood. I think that's, is all the, the animal genome, you've got the Nephilim, you've got all these other crazy beings and, and, and um, prehistory coming out of the other accounts around the world in religions and mythologies. And I think it includes the plant genome. And I also think that that's why God perhaps calls the animals to the ark, because he knows the ones that aren't uh, contaminated to restart um, afresh again after the flood with no, with the eight on the ark of Noah's family and then these selected animals that he brings to the flood. So yes, I think they have a pure genealogy. I mean, you mentioned the animals. Is that because there were, I mean, from ancient times we have these legends of, you know, the griffin, for example, which is, uh, part lion, I guess part eagle. Yeah, these, they, they seem to be like chimeras. Were, was, were the, the, um, the fallen angels or the Nephilim, were they experimenting with the, with the animal genome? Were they combining different animals to create new beasts and creatures? I think that's part of the uh, knowledge and technology that's being supplied. And I also think that there's a procreation that's going on. And what's really interesting about the procreation, I mean, you get all of these beings, whether they're centaurs, and they're kind of created in a crazy way in a cloud, um, but still you have a, a cross of a human and a, uh, a horse in that case. And uh, there's just so many different accounts of these chimera type of beings, and that's the term being used today to create uh, crossbred or cross-pollinated with DNA and 
um, uh, beings is that I think that was going on. But even more to that, you have like the Anunnaki had a raven or a bird head as Horus did. And you get these accounts all around the world, like the Tengu, for example, of these Nephilim-type beings that had a bird type of head. Or you've got these lion warriors uh, that come out of prehistory. Again, you have gods with lion heads in all these different accounts around the world. And the Watchers... Uh, were seraphim who had the face of a serpent. They were called fiery serpents as you take that back to Hebrew and it's thought that their offspring looked just like them in the first generations and so you had these uh, all sorts of giant beings with these animal-like looks that you know were dominating the royal dynasties both before and after the flood and that imagery still goes with the royal families even today. You, you see dragons and you see lions and these types of things in these coats of arms. So I think this was very widespread. And after the flood, how did the giants, how were they able to return after the, the gene pool, if you will, was supposedly uh, sort of you know chlorinated? How did they get back? Yeah, and there's there's no agreement on this, and we don't have a smoking gun verse other than Genesis 6 tells us that um after you know when the, the sons of god go to human females again and afterwards a lot of people also say that that means that there's a second incursion we don't get that out of the bible but it makes the most sense and so i think there was the original incursion uh, and those impassioned angels went to the abyss and then there was another incursion on mount hermon or in sodom again um that created giants again after the flood the other ways we'd have to go into polytheism, um, where you get different accounts. Let's say, like uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where you have Atmatishtin, who is a classic Anunnaki archetypical demigod, two thirds uh, god and one third human, and all of his family are giants. And this seems to be a similar story to the Noah story, but different on the details but a Nephilim survival story on an ark. So in that bucket, you've got people on an ark somehow off the world in the earth, but somehow angels would have uh, saved them to get into the, the post-diluvian world. And then other people, which I'm not a fan of, but I think it's a possibility, um, is that the wives carried the DNA or somehow there was a stowaway on the ark. Uh, I go with second incursion just because it's just you don't have to uh, fit uh, scripture around that around the concept. Now the the giants that were vanquished. Of course, we have the uh, the story of uh, David, the shepherd boy, later to become king of Israel, uh, destroying or killing uh, Goliath. Uh, at at some point, the giants are either are killed off or driven out of the Holy Land. Uh, and then we have reports, archaeological reports and so forth, of giants showing up in the New World uh, or in places like Peru and south, all over South America. Did they, did they get on, on, on ships and sail uh, west? What do you think happened to the giants? Well, yeah, there's, that's a big question. And so what we do know is, is they are pushed out of the covenant land. We also know, and as I stated earlier, they also start the dynasties. And there's fewer and fewer of these giants as humans are moving all over the place to wipe them 
from the face of the earth. So they're going to intermarry to keep their bloodlines going with humans and to keep their bloodlines pure to create the metallic dynasties that are talked about in the book of Daniel that are sort of the seeds, as we understand it, Western civilization to the European dynasty. So we have a migration that comes out of the Middle East and into Europe um, that are going to form those dynasties. And out of that is a related account that's the Tuatha Danan. And these are the ones who escape out of Tartarus in the accounts, and Tartarus is located in these accounts in Scythia, uh, and they migrate south after the flood uh, into um, the Promised Land in the Middle East. They march north to settle up the Danube and into Russia, Sweden, and Norway, and over to England uh, in another direction and wave uh, and Ireland. And so you have blonde hair, blue-eyed survivors, of giants with pale skin, and you have pale skin, red hair, hazel-eyed giants. And it's thought that many of these red-haired ones were the ones, for the most part, that migrated to North America after that, because whether it's the North American accounts and in, in archaeology, uh, or it's the South American ones with the, uh, the Peru skulls um, that are being discovered now, they have this red hair that goes along uh, with the discoveries, and the DNA is taking that back to Scythia. Um, now, this isn't something that we, you know, we can find in the Bible, but it does make sense when you look at the other polytheist accounts around the world in terms of Scythia as being that sort of epicenter for where these giants start after the flood. All right, we will uh, take a time out here. We're approaching the top of the hour. Gary Wayne will stay with us into the next hour right here on The Conspiracy Show.